0: Welcome to Global Math Department. My name is Rana Arshad Hafiz, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are going to hear from Denise Green and Allison Lynch. They will talk to us about how mathematical modeling and how it supports readiness for college math. Would everyone please introduce themselves in the chat below, telling us what you teach where and what your Twitter handle is if you have one. Before I let the the speakers introduce themselves, I'd like to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The global Math community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversations, and throughout the meeting, I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenters to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Over to you, Alison and Denise. Thank you so much
1: and thank you for having us. Welcome to all of you. We're really excited to be here to talk about ways that we can improve college readiness through mathematical modeling. My name is Allison Lynch. I'm an associate professor of mathematics at California State University, Monterey Bay. I mostly teach mathematics courses, but I've had the great pleasure to work with teachers and school districts in my area on this challenge because it really is both a K 12 and a post secondary challenge.
2: And I'm Denise Green, I am currently a coach at Desmos and I previously was the Educational Administrator of Math at the Monterey County Office of Education. And I share that because that's how Allie and I connected and started to do some work with a lot of um, local districts at the county office as well, as well as some of our post-secondary institutions. So I wanted to share a little bit of uh, who I am and um, why we're here tonight. And so with that, I actually wanna go ahead and just jump into it. We already launched, I think this poll but we wanna get a sense of um, what you think about mathematical modeling. Thank you again for introducing yourself in the chat. If you haven't done so already, we love to get a sense of who is here as well. Um, And so we wanna give you a chance to reflect on what mathematical modeling means to you. So, um, you know, first we have, what's your role? If you wanna answer that just so we know who's in the room. And then we also have for you an open-ended question poll to respond to when I hear mathematical modeling, I think. And I believe you can toggle over on the right-hand side to the polls to respond here. Wonderful. And actually, I'm not super familiar with this platform. If I close the first poll about your role, will it show people the results?
1: I don't think it shows the results, but they might
2: be able to click on the word polls above the chat to see the results possibly. Okay, wonderful. I just wanna highlight, we have a mix in the room here. We have some secondary teachers, we have some coaches or TOSAs, an administrator, and some higher education post-secondary um, representatives as well. So I just wanna highlight, we have a great mix in the room here tonight. Again, thank you for joining us. I'm gonna go ahead and close the roll poll. Um, that's a hard one to say, but I'm gonna leave though, when I hear mathematical modeling, I think open, in case anybody hops in late and wants to respond as well. Um, and again, I'm not sure if you can see the responses to those as they're coming in as well. But when I hear mathematical modeling, I think I'm just going to highlight a few of the things I'm seeing um, in the poll response here. How we use math to explain or model something. I think real world messy problems to solve. I saw something around messy real world and a couple of responses here. Framing real world phenomena in mathematical terms and representing reality using math relationships. These are just some of the responses. There are lots of wonderful replies in here, but I wanna just highlight a few of these. Um, And we wanna just kind of share one definition, kind of a working definition that we used from uh, GAME, and it is mathematical modeling is a process that uses mathematics to represent, analyze, make predictions, or otherwise provide insight into real world phenomena. We'll give you a moment to read that on your own as well. And this is one definition. It comes from the Guidelines for Assessment uh, and Instruction in Mathematical Modeling Education, otherwise known as GAME. Um, And I just want you to pause for a moment, think of any words or phrases that might pop out to you from reading this. If you would like to add that in the chat, feel free to. If not, that's okay. And I see in the chat now that you aren't able to see the responses uh, um, to the poll. So I'm uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, we'll see if we can find a way to maybe share them out another way later, because I thought there were some great responses about uh, what people think of mathematical modeling. One word that always jumps out to me in this definition is um, the word process, right? That modeling is this like, n- it's not a thing necessarily so much as a process. Um, And I wanna share with you one visual that we used uh, to represent or think about the modeling process. Uh, We picked this one. It's one that's a little bit more common. Uh, Some people are familiar with this. This is obviously not the only one. Um, We just wanted to share one to kind of get us in the, on the same page here. So in this visual, you can see what that modeling really is a cycle. It's a nonlinear process and it involves different kinds of thinking uh, from what students are accustomed to, particularly in I think elementary grades or lower grades as well. Um, The problems in this cycle are not necessarily formulated. They don't necessarily have one single answer. And again, like you see the arrows, like there's some going back, there's some revisiting. Um, It's not again, just one linear one clean way. Um, there's also, as part of this cycle, a lot of judgment, approximation, critical thinking. All of that is part of this process. Um, and so, in order for students to engage in this modeling process, where they have some observation, some problem, something they 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 want to know more about, then they formulate again. There, you think of that as using mathematics or representing this problem mathematically before they then start to compute or manipulate this model. Um, then they go into analyzing the results and, of course, reflecting to determine the validation piece um, to what degree this model accurately represents this problem, and then revisiting, re engaging that cycle, or kind of sharing out their findings. Uh, and for students to be able to engage in this cycle, it's really important for them to have a task that lends itself to this process. And so What makes an effective modeling task? There are kind of three big components that we wanted to highlight or share. Um, And again, this is a different, like I mentioned earlier, a different process for what many students experience uh, in in previous or earlier classes. But we think of modeling tasks as open-ended. Again, uh, multiple points of entry. There's a lot of assumptions that we might be making that we wanna call out. There's not necessarily a closed answer or one results that we're expecting. Uh, it's authentic. This is one thing I love about modeling, that we value students' brilliance and knowledge, what they bring, their prior experiences, the things that, um, uh, that not necessarily just mathematical uh, that are important to them, they bring into this space as well. And of course, uh, it has to be accessible. So students have tools, a variety of tools that they can use to start to make sense of and approach this task. Um, and so thinking about, again, our modeling cycle, as well as what we think makes an effective modeling task, I just want to highlight, go back to the cycle here, and highlight in the context of some more familiar type of math problems students encounter, where we think they fall in this cycle. So one example I have is word problems. And so we can think of word problems, you know, as as more closed. that, you know, generally there's one Answer a result a teacher might be looking for, maybe more than one way to get there, but it generally is, is a is a tighter or clo- a more closed problem, which is mostly in the compute or the kind of do some, apply some mathematics to this model, right? Uh, in that in that range. Um the next iteration we've seen is application problems, which generally them more problems a little bit in that there's more of a context or a story. There's a little bit of the, okay, so I've read this context or story and I want to figure out some problem, do some work to it and then see if this, uh, interpret these results. Um, so it kind of gets students into more of the modeling process. And again, we think of this as a progression, right? Like there is an appropriate time and place for all of these pieces. Not that necessarily you model, you're doing modeling from kindergarten every single day. Right. And so they're just thinking about where this falls in our process. And then, of course, the modeling, true modeling tasks and problems lend themselves to this entire cycle. Um, and so now I've done some talking through and explaining of getting us on the same page about what we mean when we refer to modeling and the modeling cycle or modeling tasks. But, of course, I feel like the best way to, to learn it is to experience. And so Allie's going to take us through a condensed experience now of a task and we'll share a little bit at the end of our story and how uh, we came to collaborate and what we've done with some modeling tasks.
1: Thank you, Denise. So yes, we're gonna take a look at a modeling task that we've used with high school students. Um, And here is the gist of the task. We have this poster here with an adorable kitten on it with a claim that Uh, in just 18 months, this female cat can have 2,000 descendants. So the idea with this poster uh, put out by an organization that looks after stray cats, trying to encourage you to spay and neuter your cats. But that's a pretty uh, interesting claim that in 18 months, that's a year and a half, one female cat could have 2000 descendants. So, our task is to determine whether this number, 2000 descendants in 18 months, is realistic. So, my first question for you um, is what pieces of information would be useful, pieces of information about cats and uh, perhaps society, would be useful to, or helpful to answer this question. So I'd like you to respond in the chat if you have any uh, thoughts on this. What piece of information would be helpful for us to have here? Right, how long is the cat gestational period? That's really important. How long will the cats live? The average litter size? Yeah, how many cats can we expect in a given litter? What's the typical range? How frequent are litters? Are cats popping out litters every month or is it more like every year? Uh, The ratio of male to female in a litter, definitely. Ooh, how old are they when they're old enough to reproduce? Sure, I mean, we wouldn't expect that a newborn kitten would be getting pregnant right away. We know that that's not how mammal reproduction typically works. Um, so, so how old are they when they're old enough to reproduce? Are we assuming that none of the female descendants are spayed, right? If, if we're picking up strays, um, and getting them spayed, that's certainly going to reduce the likelihood that they're going to reproduce. Um, Ooh, it can have meant to be an upper limit or on average, right. This could be one of those situations, this extreme claim that, ooh, it could happen. But realistically, you know, most of the time it's gonna be a lot fewer than that. This one cat was particularly active. Wonderful, these are all things that are gonna be important for us to answer this question. Um, And in working with students, we might have them go out and look these things up. These are, many of these things are well known about mammals, uh, certainly well-known about cats. Cats are a really well-studied species of animal. So these are not. this is not some unknown species. We can look these things up. For the purposes of today, I'm gonna give you some of these facts. These, these are really true statements about cats, but we don't have the time to have you all go off and Google search all of these things. So here are a couple of things, and these are actually, uh almost all of these are ones that were mentioned in the chat so the length of pre- pregnancy about two months the age at which a female cat can first get pregnant about four months typical number of kittens in a litter four to six uh average number of litters uh, a female cat can have in one year uh and the age at which this one wasn't mentioned but the age at which the female cat no longer has kittens about 10 years so that one probably won't be uh, super important here since we're dealing with a range of 18 months but we don't know how old the cat is that we are talking about so these are some of the facts that we have in front of us to work with um And I'm going to ask another question that's been answered by some of the chat, but I I still want you to think about this now that we have some facts in front of us. What additional assumptions might we make or might we need to make as we formulate a model for what's happening here? Because this this is good information, but it's probably not enough for us to come to any sort of definitive answer. So can you think of any additional assumptions we might make or we might need to make? that haven't been resolved. Uh, Rana talked about the ratio of male to female in a litter. Um, That's not given here. Um, Karen asked about the assumption of uh, the descendants being spayed. We haven't been given any facts about that. That's not really something that would have a fact, but it's something that is gonna influence our model. Uh, I see one coming in, are all the kittens going to have kittens? Um, certainly, we know from real life that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, are they all going to be healthy? Are they going to be able to go out and and uh, reproduce? <laughs> like uh, Lynn's comment, do they all have uh, all have nine lives? <laughs> that's right. Ooh, I really like the comment that Leanne made in the chat. Is the cat pregnant at the start of the eighteen months, um, or or perhaps are is the the cat giving pregnant getting, or uh, giving birth right at the start of those eighteen months? So this kind of timeline question of where does the, where does that eighteen months start? Yeah. The assumption that the kittens uh, born are going to survive long enough to give birth to more kittens. These are all really good uh, assumptions um, and things that we're going to have to make decisions about as we formulate our model. And one of the things that's really neat about uh, these sorts of modeling tasks is that depending on the assumptions that you make, you might come up with really different answers, really different total numbers. And that's kind of where that cycle comes in that we saw in the modeling diagram, where maybe you make some assumptions, and you get this really big number. That might give you a cause for some, some pause, like, oh, maybe maybe I want to go back and revise those assumptions. Maybe Maybe that's too many female cats. Maybe... That's too safe of an uh, or too generous of an assumption about their health and their reproduction. So I actually want to give you just a couple of minutes to start developing your own mathematical model for the number of, of kittens a female cat can have in 18 months. It's always a little funny to go silent in a webinar, but that's exactly what I'm gonna do because I've given you a math problem now. And if you're anything like me, If somebody gives me a math problem, I kind of stop paying attention for a little bit, and I really just want to try it out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mute myself. I'm going to give you three minutes to think about this on your own, grab a piece of paper, think about what assumptions you would make here, and and start developing your own mathematical model. All right, I know that was not nearly enough time to work through this task and actually develop a mathematical model, but I hope that gave you a chance to start thinking about how you would approach this task and perhaps how your students might approach this task. I'd like to share with you a a couple of pieces of student work on this task, all of whom set up the problem and and made assumptions that were quite different from each other and ended up with quite different results in terms of the claim so some of these are going to be uh these are going to be a little bit hard to view but i did want to include the actual pictures of the student work because these are were generated by groups of high school students so this group uh couple of their assumptions. So first of all, they assumed that every litter had six kittens and all six kittens were female every single time. So a whole lot of female kittens. They also assumed that the mother cat at the time zero is actively giving birth. That is the kittens are coming out right now. That's when the clock, 18 month clock starts. And they also assumed that as soon as possible after that, Every female cat would become pregnant um, either for the first time or again. So we can see here from this lovely drawing of a cat. The uh, mother cat has six kittens initially. And then as soon as possible, those six each have six more kittens. And as soon as possible, those have six more kittens and so forth. And then there's a recognition in here that you can't quite read it at the bottom here, but they note that every cat, a cat can get pregnant up to four times during an 18 month period. That's not gonna be true for all of them. So their number that they've come up here is is definitely gonna be an overestimate because not all of them will become pregnant that four times, but that's where that times four is coming from. Now, this group uh, approached things a little bit differently, so they started out with the mother cat just becoming pregnant in the first month, as opposed to currently giving birth. They apparently called the cat T. Mao. Not sure what that's about, but that's the cat's name, and they've color coded things based on the generation of the cats. Now they assumed different things about the litters and the ratio of male to female cats. So they assumed that that first cat, mom cat, uh, would have four girls every time she got pregnant. Not sure if there were any boys, if it was out of six, but four girls and then her descendants, the female cats would have three girls in each litter and their descendants would have two cats in each litter. So fewer and fewer kittens uh, that are female in each litter. And another notable assumption, you can see this list on the left-hand side, they say our girl cats don't recuperate. Um, And what I assume they mean there is they have one litter and then they're done. So unlike the previous group who assumed that cats were just going to keep reproducing and reproducing and reproducing, cats are going to have, these cats are going to have uh, one litter and, and then they are done. Um, and so you can see the month diagram, even though you probably won't be able to quite read the numbers here, you can see the color coding of what mom is producing, what mom's kittens, grand kittens, great grand kittens. And, and so with these assumptions, you can see that they came up with a much lower number of expected descendants, uh, over that 18 month period. And so with, with these assumptions, no, this this female cat T. Mao will not get to 2,000 descendants. Okay, and now I wanna get to uh, this third piece. This is hard to read because it's on a diagonal, but you know, we have pictures of student work and they're sometimes uh, not the best pictures. Um, and this actually speaks to something that Karen said in the chat. She asked, how much can male cats participate in reproduction? And that's where this group went with the task. So they said, actually, we're going to assume that all of the descendants are male. So every time a a cat gives birth, it's going to have six boy cats. And they decided that these cats were going to go out and have lots of of relations with lots and lots and lots of different cats. So if you can read it on there, it says. Uh, that uh, the one kitten will become mature and mate with different female cat the whole month, thirty days. So they're they're saying that each cat is going to mate with thirty different cats in a month. Um, so that ended up uh, with a whole lot more descendants. In fact, their number was sixty six thousand four hundred and 20 descendants from their set of assumptions. Um, And they map them out with a couple of month increments here and getting to the idea of what's going on uh, with this situation. So across a class, we saw a whole bunch of different numbers of estimates all based on what the assumptions are. And you can have this conversation about the realism and and why assumptions are are made and and where things are overestimates and where things are underestimates. And students can bring in their own knowledge of animals and what they've seen in their experience with pets. So this this really does facilitate a lot of great conversations and a lot of that iterative process that we want to see in mathematical modeling. So this task in particular was uh, taken from the the Mathematics Assessment Project, which is developed by the Mars Shell Center. And this is a really great source of modeling tasks. We've included a number of these things here and and we'll share the links with you as sources for good tasks. These may be places that you're familiar with some of these Ucubed Math Shell Desmos modeling collection. Uh, Dan Meyer's Three Act tasks. Those are ones where there are a number of free tasks available. Uh, and we've included a couple other resources because they're things that you may have access to through institutional memberships. And often these have some free resources. So COMAP is a consortium uh, about modeling and they've got a lot of books published as well as electronic resources. Uh, NCTM and NCTM Illuminations. Uh, If you're a member of NCTM, there are a lot of good additional resources there. Um, And the Silicon Valley Math Initiative uh, is a group that's especially active in California. So for folks who are in the California area, you may have affiliations with them. So I'm gonna turn things back over to Denise. Yes, I see the comment in the chat. Can we put the hyperlinks in the chat? I will do that right now as Denise takes over to talk about what, why we might be interested in engaging students in these kinds of tasks.
2: Absolutely, Allie. Thank you for taking us through the kitchen's task. And so now that you had a chance to kind of see semi-experience, not really the full of Fledged experience, right? Uh, a modeling task, one that we use with high school students as well. Um, and you got to see a little bit of how some of our students responded to the task. We wanna ask you to take a moment just to reflect on this experience. Uh, we're actually gonna launch a poll now. Uh, just asking, what might students learn or take away from engaging in this the kittens task, this modeling task? So we'll give you a few moments to respond to that poll. And I'm just going to read out some of these. Um, you can, I think, toggle over and see it yourself. But just in case not, I'll read some of these out loud as well. Um, what what might students take away? That different people have different assumptions, which could lead to different results. So it's important to call those out. Assumptions matter. Um, mathematical thinking is helpful and useful. Um, there's limits to math modeling when working in real world pho- problem scenarios. Math can help math working on problems Math can help working problems when there is not one single approach. There is no one correct answer, multiple representations with multiple possible answers. I also see thinking, planning, collaborating, sense-making, uh, the power of exponential growth, and experiencing math in new ways. Um, I appreciate that last response. I want to highlight that a little bit in our, in our next piece here. Oh, let me flip over here. Again, these... There are so many reasons why we felt like modeling was such a powerful tool. Um, just some highlights that we want to share. Again, this obviously does not include all of it. As I'm looking at this, I'm like, I, did we? Yeah, we do have it on it, luckily. Working collaboratively. We just now, your experience was like, take a moment, think about it yourself. But we have our students working in teams, working in groups, really going through this process as a team. Um, and so there's that component. Of course, the multiple solutions. Earlier, I mentioned the celebrating of your prior knowledge and experiences. Like Allie said, you know there are students who might be involved, um, whether through 4-H or uh, FFA or some other organization around like taking care. Of, I heard bunnies earlier in the chat, right? So there's kind of that prior knowledge that students might bring in that's not necessarily mathematically mathematical or math related, but in this context, really is powerful and important. Um, it teaches the perseverance, the importance of identifying assumptions complex problem solving, right? Um, there's so many reasons for this and and more, uh, why we wanna highlight why we felt it was important to incorporate modeling. And uh, as we were kind of pushing students to rethink themselves as math learners and to really prepare students for college. And so now that you're, now I kind of talked a little bit about this and the importance of us using modeling to help redefine how, like, what math is, what it means to do and learn math for students, and so we want to tell a little bit of our story of how we came to collaborate on modeling at the high school level, Um, so Here's a kind of shortened version of our story and how there was a shared grant opportunity that allowed us to build as part of a bigger team. It was not just the two of us. Um, It took a lot of brains and efforts to build a modeling focused course uh, and a classroom for high school students. Um, And so kind of before we begin sharing about this project, we wanna just um, share a little bit about what both of us were seeing and experiencing within our contexts. And again, we're both located in Monterey County in the same area. Um, let me move forward here. Oh, and Allie, you wanna share from the post-secondary side first. Absolutely.
1: So from the post-secondary side, we saw there was an issue. Um, and Fundamentally, a number of pieces all related to the same challenge. So for example, we were seeing high failure rates in first year college math courses. So courses like calculus, intro statistics, uh, students who were coming out of high school being successful in high school and then still really struggling at the college level. Um, In particular, we were encountering students who could recall their facts, they could manipulate, they could execute procedures, but we're struggling to apply those in problem-solving contexts. And we were also encountering students who were placing into classes that they had already completed. So maybe they had taken a high school pre-calculus class, had passed it, and then they were still placing in pre-calculus, or maybe even a remedial class before that. For example, uh, from one of our local community colleges. Uh, back in 2017, they found that 68% of students were placing into a college math course at or below the last high school math class they had taken. Um, and in, in fact, 39% were placing into a lower level course than the last one they completed. So maybe they had taken. Calculus, and they were placing into intermediate algebra and algebra two equivalent um, or something along those lines or they had taken pre calculus past pre calculus and and again placing into these remedial courses. Um, And remarkably, even in those situations, some students who were repeating courses that they had already passed weren't necessarily passing those courses Um, in fact this. 56% 56% pass rate for pre-calculus for students who had already passed pre-calculus. Now, this is definitely not a K-12 only challenge. And Denise is going to talk about the what they were seeing at the K-12 level, but this really started getting post-secondary folks involved in the conversation around what we across the levels needed to do to help remedy this issue. So I'll let Denise talk about what they were seeing at the K-12
2: level. Absolutely, and uh, thank you, Allie, for sharing. And I'm going to keep this pretty short because I feel like uh, these were very similar themes that I know other teachers, other districts, and other schools have seen as well. Um, so we saw students in high school, f- very early on in high school, falling off the path of meeting college math requirements. Connected to that, and I might jump the bullets here a little bit, a lot of just kind of the generic, like, math phobia or avoidance, right? I'm, this, is my, this is my plan for after high school. And so because of that, whether whatever major I choose to study or whatever I you know, plan to pursue, I don't need math. So there was this kind of avoidance too. Um, there was a lot of focus around re- remediation through more practice, kind of a slower pacing, right? Taking a year across two years, that kind of a thing, um, and a pretty traditional structure for a curriculum and uh, pedagogy. So that's what we were seeing at the high school level, kind of a general recognition of like, this isn't working. How do we help more students be successful? Build up that math identity, have positive experiences. Um, you know, what what are things that we can do to ensure that, not, you know, students make it not just all the way through, but beyond, right? That those doors stayed open for them past high school as well. Um, and so again, like I mentioned, a lot of these things that we were seeing in our classrooms, in our schools, in our districts, were not unique just to those schools districts. Uh, as And so we were seeing them across the state. And so at the state level uh, in California, just to give, i sure I mentioned that earlier, that context, right? Um, these themes are being recognized by policymakers. And so in 2015, 16, 17, some policies were made. I'm going to show the next slide um, here just as I'm going to talk through the story a little bit more here. So again, state recognizes that Uh, math placement matters, what's happening with our students in high school, beyond high school. And so there were a couple of of policy changes. One came out um, regarding freshman placement. That was um, Senate Bill 359 and how students are placed into their freshman level high school math class. And then we also saw kind of this parallel at the post-secondary level, two new policies One, an executive order that required all students at the CSU system to place into a college level, meaning a non-remedial math course to earn credits towards a degree. Um, And then as well, an assembly bill that had similar changes for community college level. So we kind of saw these policies in terms of placement and ensuring that students have access to um, uh, a math course that would put them on the pathway to earning a degree um, or at the high school level into uh, meeting college requirements. Um, And so, what the state also saw is we're making these changes, so this means like there's going to have to be other changes in terms of what we do in our classrooms with students, practices that then um, are able to support this policy change, meaning we see more students from a wider range. How can we uh, change what we use or do in our classrooms to be able to meet those needs? Uh, We also saw, of course, a need, as we're talking about high school and transition into college, for a fourth year course in that students were taking and completing three years of math, getting their you know, uh, high school diploma requirements met, college entrance requirements met, and then would have this year where there weren't a lot of options. It was like, if take an AP, if you would like AP calculus or statistics, uh, possibly do dual enrollment and take a math course at a community college, or retake a math class at your high school that you've taken before and passed, uh, there weren't necessarily a lot of offerings for fourth year. And so one of the things the state released um, were, were grants to support some of these transitions. It was one of them was called the California Math Readiness Challenge Initiative. There were five of those grants awarded. And actually, uh, Ali and I were part of a, a much larger team that was granted one of those. And again, the intention of that was to support in the creation of a fourth year math course for students who have successfully completed three years of math, but then again, didn't have an interest in necessarily pursuing calculus or statistics, and there weren't a lot of options. And so the course we created and the sample you saw, the kitten's task, as well as the student samples, the images that uh, we captured and shared tonight too, um, were from the course that we developed. We called it the transition to college level math. The intention behind this Uh, course, again, as we were designing this, is that it was very student-centered. There's a lot of collaboration, group-worthy tasks. It was task-based. There was a heavy emphasis on modeling and application to the real world. And like we kind of talked about in our reflection from the Kittens task earlier, a huge rationale behind that was we wanted students to have a different experience, to get to see math and math class learning math in a different way. Um, we wanted them to also be exposed to not only previous topics, but different and new interesting topics that they might not have known or thought about as um, mathy, like um, graph theory uh, or cryptography, right? Like those were kind of the, the tension behind this fourth love uh, fourth year course. And so again, uh, just pulling a quote back from, from game, Mathematical modeling, mathematical modeling, excuse me, can be used to motivate curricular requirements and can highlight the importance and relevance of math in answering important questions. And so, again, shifting that mindset of students of like, what is math? What is my relationship to math? What is the role of of math in my life? We felt like centering modeling in this course really made an impact and made a difference for us um, and our students. I talked through some of these already kind of broadening the perception of what is math and what are math learners, building that student confidence, and creating interest and a need for some of these skills or topics that we might have learned in previous math courses, but not necessarily had them tied to or applied to a context. Um, And Ali, I'm going to pass it to you to close us out here.
1: Great, so in thinking about this course, in thinking about incorporating mathematical modeling across the curriculum, uh, we're really drawn to this quote from the MAA and NCTM joint position statement on calculus, which the statement is on calculus, but the quote is much more general than that. And and they say the ultimate goal of the K-12 mathematics curriculum should be to have established the mathematical foundation that will enable students to pursue whatever course of study interests them when they get to college. And I think we would generalize that to beyond college, to whatever it is that students want to do um, in their their lives, whether that's college or otherwise. Although of course we're especially focused on college readiness, really setting that foundation for students to be able to pursue whatever it is um, that that they want. And, And we really feel like modeling helps us get there. This course that we developed in particular has served 2,400 students since, uh, since we started offering it in 2017, um, and we don't have that, that hard data that we really want to have to be able to say, yes, this course, the mathematical modeling in this course has improved student success at the college level. It's somewhat challenging data to collect because these students who are in a number of different high schools are going off and doing such a range of things. Um, But we do have some anecdotal quotes from students um, really talking about their experience in the mathematical modeling in the class. Um, One student wrote that this course allowed me to expand my thinking. The teacher continuously encouraged us to dig deeper in our understanding. Another students said they liked the hands-on projects and the leadership skills they started developing. Do we normally think about leadership in a math class? No, but if you're given, giving students the opportunity to develop their own mathematical models, that's a big part of it. Um, and then students also said things along the lines of, this course has greatly benefited me for the rigorous math courses they'll be taking in the fall. And, and I wanna highlight that in, in particular because, I think we, we often think about some of these elements as maybe taking away from the, the rigor. We have to do these things while not covering all the content. But in fact, students have perceived this as really helping them, adding to the rigor, helping students be prepared for what
2: comes next. And Ellie, I want can I add one slide? This is just like, again, as we're talking about impact and another kind of side benefit too, is the teachers we have who are teaching this course love it so much too. Like in terms of their own, you know, facilitating this experience for students, the feedback they get from their students, it's just been a really enjoyable course for them as well. And I think that that's something great to highlight, just thinking even about like um, bringing the joy sometimes back and being able to do like the fun, gray, messy process of like why math is so beautiful too. And so I think hearing even teachers sharing how much fun it is and how they enjoy seeing their students like, and teachers who have taught this multiple times talk about how they're still blown away by the things students do, like even the kittens task, right? Like every iteration, every time it's been used, while there are definitely themes and patterns that emerge, there's still this just kind of uh, opportunity to be blown away by students every time. Um, And so that's another kind of impact that, Maybe it's directly about the students, but I just want to share that um, that's one thing we've seen in this course as well. Thanks for adding that, Denise.
1: So we will conclude here. Thank you so much for attending and, and participating. I'll share, I'm going to share our, our reference slides, um, each one br- briefly for folks who um, want to look at these later from all of the sources that we cited. Here's our uh, slides template. I'll go back to the thank you slide. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Denise, for being with us here tonight and presenting. I hope you'll be able to stick around for a few minutes for any questions that may come up. Absolutely. Please put your questions in the chat.
2: Yeah, we can drop, Allie, um, that two-pager doc. I know one question is just about learning more about the class, the syllabus, or the topics. Um, I know we can put that as either a handout or a link. I'll put it as a link. So
1: here's our course we developed for more information and some contact info on there. Oh, I see a question coming in. Uh, How can mathematical modeling be used or applied in the online setup? That was definitely something we had to deal with, as everyone has dealt with in the last few years. Um, And I think depending on how you're managing the online setup, uh, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. I know what our teachers did is had students in br- breakout rooms or breakout room equivalents working together maybe on a shared whiteboard space as they developed their their work and collaborating together in that setting. Um, certainly being in a digital setting means so much information, so much data is at your fingertips. So I know that there was a lot more having students find the data to support their assumptions. You know, doing that Google search, having them pull in that data, sharing data with each other, um, and then giving presentations in the virtual setting, you know, groups sharing to the other groups what they did. You know, maybe it's on a shared whiteboard, maybe it's something they, they wrote on paper or in a, in a document in that way. Um, do you know of any other, can you think of other ways, Denise, that folks manage the, the virtual environment?
2: Sure. I was going to say, there was definitely a lot of uh, a kind of different stylistic approaches, depending on the teacher, right? Like even thinking about the presentation aspect of it. Some had more of an asynchronous, like students almost did like a, a talk over recording and other students could look at it or comment. Some did more of a gallery walk style where you look at a, you know, your group would look at another group's. Um, whether it was a Jamboard or a slide deck or whatever that may be, and then you would comment on it. Um, some ha- d- did more of a like synchronous, uh, in person, like quick presentation kind of a thing. It just depended. Um, I thought what was really powerful though was a lot of our teachers, again, thought about transitioning some of their best practices into the digital space too. So um, one of the things I always think about is the color coding piece of. Um, one of the teacher's classroom where she was really good about having students uh, write their comments in person in specific colors, right? So they get a sense of whose voice was written on this board. And she kind of duplicated that practice in in, um, the digital setting too. She just got her students used to, we're all going to be typing in like a certain color, a certain font type too. So there were things like that, that I saw, you know, like, that we saw definitely transition over. Uh, it was a challenge, definitely. Um, I know even facilitating, you know, when you think about in-person small groups and you can listen here while you're over here, right? Like there was a lot of the teacher feeling they were popping in a different breakout room and facilitating smaller groups, but less of a picture like you would get in the in-person environment of what all of them are doing. Um, but definitely heard a lot of great success uh, from our teachers and you know, definitely a different experience though, than what those who had taught in the uh, non-virtual environment.
1: I see the question in the chat. Is there a good link to read more about the class you taught, syllabus, textbooks, or activities? So I put the uh, a link in the chat. I'm not sure that it has those things, but if you're interested in more resources, I I always have to check with the the broader team of what we're able to share. but uh, if you wanna send, a, send me an email, I would be happy to to share what I can in addition to that link.
0: Thank you so much, Alison and Denise. We'll be back on February 8th with another webinar and we would be uh, hearing from Anne Elise record on flexibility through facts. I hope many of you are able to join us again for that webinar. We'll just hang out for one more minute to see if there are any more questions. Thank you, Ev. Thank you very much to all those people who attended tonight. Again, as I said, we'll be back on February 8th with Annalise Record, and we'll be talking about flexibility through FACT. Thanks so much for sharing, Allison and Denise.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. All
0: right. I don't see any more questions, so I think we're good for for tonight. Thank you very much, everyone. So long.